Aloha, and welcome to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel, Kaneohe. Today, Pastor Ralph brings part two of his message entitled, Faith That Reflects God. We're still in Genesis chapter 17. And now, here's Pastor Ralph. Well, let's go on to verse two. God says, I am always. In other words, I won't forsake you. I won't let you down. I will make a covenant with you. The word covenant means I will make a contract with you by which I will guarantee to make you into a mighty nation. At this, Abram fell down in the dust, probably as, as a sign, much like you'd see Muslims praying with their, fa- their forehead on the ground. Abram falls down to honor God and to worship him. And God said to him, this is my contract with you. I will make you the father of not just one nation, but a multitude of nations. And then get this. What's more, I am changing your name. It will no longer be Abram. Now you'll be known as Abraham, for you'll be the father of many nations. I will give you millions of descendants who will represent many nations. Kings will be among them. I will continue this everlasting contract between us, generation after generation. It will continue between me and your offspring forever. And I will, underline this, always be your God. I will always be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God's making a promise. I will be with you. I'll stick with you. Now, again, put it in the context. Abram thinks that God forsook him because he knows he messed up. God's strangely silent for a good long time, but he comes back and says, I never left. I'm with you, and I'll always be with you. And the message to you and I is, you know, sometimes we feel guilty. We do something that we know is wrong, and then we come back and we feel like we can't pray. We can't talk to God. We can't approach him because he's mad at us, and he's gone. No, I'll always be there. I never change. You know, whatever, I'm still there. I'm faithful, and, and you can count on me. But I want you to, to see this thing. The, the two things that you have to see in this part are the, the part about a contract. And the contract, basically, God tells Abram, I'm going to do the blessing. It's really a contract that holds me responsible to bless you. I'm going to give you all this offspring, this and that. But then notice it says he's changing his name. It'll no longer be Abram. Now you'll be known as Abraham. The name Abram means exalted father, and it had become a joke. And God says, now I'm going to change your name to be a, a name that means uh, God of a multitude, I mean father of a multitude. And n- n- now at this point, he still has the son through Hagar, but he doesn't have the child through his wife Sarai that God promised to give to him. So the promise hasn't been fulfilled, but the name change happens prior to the physical change. Does that make sense? And if you go to, to throughout pretty much Asia and the East, there's a practice that people have. They'll change their name when something changes in their life. Oftentimes it's reflective of something that happened. You change your name to something that's descriptive of who you have become. Or, more importantly, and most often, they'll change their name to reflect what they want to become. A, a name that has meaning. God says here to Abram, I'm going to, th- this is the target. This is what I'm going to make you into. And so I'm going to name you that before I fulfill the promise in your life. Interesting, the scriptures say in, in Revelation that every one of us, when we become a Christian, God has given us a new name, but no man knows the name, not even you, but God does. So it's like God has figured out where he wants to take you and what kind of a person, what he wants to do with your character and how he wants to change you. And as we go through the rest of today, we're going to see that often these names uh, do re- reflect what, almost the opposite of what we used to be and what we're going to be. God's trying to take the deficit in your life and make something very good out of it. And there's hope in that for me. Is this good? Yeah. We'll go to the next part here. I call this God is the master or the God is the covenant master because uh, he, he, he makes this contract or this covenant with Abram 
And if you'll notice, God is the one who lays out the terms. They didn't negotiate terms. God says, here is the contract, and now you sign it. God is in control. God wants to be in a driver's seat of our life. And, and it says here, your part of the agreement, God told Abraham, now he changes his name, is to obey the terms of the covenant. You and all your descendants have this continual responsibility. And this is the covenant that you and your descendants must keep. It's very simple. Each male among you must be circumcised. A flesh of his foreskin must be cut off, and this will be a sign that you and they have accepted this covenant. Every male child must be circumcised on the eighth day after his birth. This applies not only to members of your family, but also to servants born in your household, foreign-born servants whom you have purchased. All must be circumcised. Underline those words. All must be circumcised. Your bodies will thus bear the mark of my everlasting covenant, and anyone who refuses to be circumcised will be cut off from the covenant family. They'll still be in the family, but they won't be in the covenant family, or they won't be a, a, a part of the contract with God and Abraham because they violated the covenant. And God says that everybody that's going to be a part of this covenant of His has to be circumcised. Well, not any longer. The Bible says in the New Testament that we're free from that. But take a look at this scripture here. I want you to think about what is circumcision and why did God do this to these people. And the New Testament, the Apostle Paul writes, and he says, talking about Abraham, that he received the sign, that's an important word, of circumcision as a seal, and that's the word we're going to look at, of the righteousness of the faith which he had yet being uncircumcised. In other words, the faith that Abram had before he was circumcised was sort of signified in this act of circumcision. You'll notice that comes, it says KJV, that comes from the King James Version of the Bible, which was translated 400 years ago in 1615. A king named James paid for the translation of the Bible. Uh, first time it was ever translated into English officially. Uh, the thing about the King James is it's a little bit old-fashioned. English language changes. That's why you have phrases like, which he had yet being uncircumcised. A grammar has changed. But the other thing about the King James is it's very accurate. In fact, it's a better translation of Romans 4.11 than you're carrying in your Bible here. It, it says he received the sign. What's the sign? Well, it's, it's an action that says, I agree to something. It's a symbolic action. And then it uses the word, a seal of the righteousness which comes from faith. Well, what is all this, this seal business? Well, did you ever go to a notary public to have something signed? And they have that little seal thing that they crimp into the paper? What does that say? Well, that makes this official. It's agreed upon. All parties agree. Suppose that you went out to buy a house and, and uh, you negotiated the price and, and you went to the mortgage company and you negotiated a loan and the escrow guys did all the million things that they have to do to get all this together. And then when it came to the day to finalize the purchase of the house, you went in and you sat down in the room and you said, um, that's great, I agree with everything, uh, but I just don't want to sign it. So nobody could put the seal on it. You didn't do your half, they couldn't do their half. Uh, all, all that you had on paper would amount to nothing more than wishful thinking if you were unwilling to sign the thing. Does that make sense to you? Well, I mean, what's the signature? It's just a little blob of ink on a piece of paper. It means nothing. No, what it is is I'm sealing the deal. I'm doing my part of acknowledging that I embrace this thing. Now, if you notice the contract between God and, and Abraham, God says, I'm going to do all the work. I'm going to make all the miracle part happen. What you have to do is sign off on the thing. And the way that you have to sign off is through circumcision and through your whole 
family history, everybody else that comes along that wants to be a part of this agreement has to also sign off. And then it says, and those who don't, don't get to be a part of the thing that we're doing here. Does that, does that compute? You, you, you get it? And so this, this, this symbolic act, now we live in a society that largely rejects symbolic acts. Anything that has to do with tradition or symbolism uh, in, in our society, we've kind of scrapped it. It's, it's not a very meaningful thing. I remember during the 1970s, everybody would say, oh, we're living together, we're not married. And, and marriage, what's that? It's just a piece of paper. No, it's a seal. You've, em, you've embraced one another. And what we found out now is those relationships where you just live together end up in failure most of the time. And three weeks ago, they came out with some big survey that says if you live together as a trial run for marriage, you've almost certainly doomed yourself to divorce once you do get married. So these symbolic acts turn out to be not just in the Bible, but in terms of, of psychology and sociology, hugely important. You've got to sign the deal. And God says to Abraham, I'll do the work, but you've got to sign. You've got to embrace. You've got to admit. It's not enough to just know stuff about God. You've got to come to a place where you engage him and you embrace his promise. Are you following this with me? Well, let's go on further. And we're going to come back to the circumcision thing in just a minute. But come further with me through this. In verse 15, it says, Then God added, Regarding Sarai, your wife, her name will no longer be Sarai, but from now on you will call her Sarah, and I will bless her and give you a son from her. Yes, I will bless her richly, and she will become the mother of many nations. Kings will be among her descendants. Now, what is God saying here is, I'm not just blessing you, Abram. I'm blessing the people around you. We're going to read some more of this kind of blessing here. And that's true of us. God wants to bless us. He wants to bless people around. It was Sarai that he had planned to bear the child that would give him the nation of people. The trouble is, she's an old lady. She's like 89 years old when God says this. So we're dealing with miracle time here. And, uh, but notice the name change. There's this thing of reflecting God. You know what Sarai means? The dominator. <laughs> I mean, think about it. Every time the guy thinks about his wife, he's thinking about the dominator. <laughs> well, this isn't a sexist joke up here, because we know a lot of men that are like that. They ought to be called the dominator in their house. And God says, I'm changing the dominator's name to princess. Something that has become ugly over the years, because she became that. If you read the story of her and Hagar, and, and you get a little further and go ahead and read ahead of where we're at, you see that this lady was... And, and Abram had a hard time with her. We read it last week. He, he'd chicken out when she would when she would yell at him. He'd go, oh, "Yeah, do anything you want." You know, she was the dominator in the household, and and there wasn't there wasn't partnership going on in this household. God says, "I'm going to change her. I'm making her into a princess, and I'm going to bless her, and I'm going to give her the things that she was looking for." And that goes both ways. If you're the dominator in your household, God wants to take away the fear that causes you to act like that and get you on even turf with the rest of the family and let his grace flow through you. Well, it goes on and says, I like this part now. What basically God has said is, Abraham, your 89-year-old wife is going to have a kid when she's 90. I mean, it doesn't say that, but that's in so many words what it's saying. Verse 17 says, Abraham bowed to the ground. Again, bad translation. It means he fell to the ground at this point. And he laughed in disbelief. How can I have a father how can I become a father at the age of 100? Besides, Sarah is 90. How could she have a baby? And Abram said to God, Yes, may Ishmael enjoy your special blessing. I mean, Abraham basically rolls in the dirt and goes, <laughs> This isn't going to happen. Oh, God, that's a great one. But you know what? Go ahead and bless Ishmael. All these things you've been saying, let it happen to Ishmael. So where are we? We're right back to Abraham in the driver's seat 
and, and God coming along for the ride, and God, you just blink, bring the blessings, I'll call the shots. And God says to him, no, it's not going to work that way. It says, uh, verse 19, God replied, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you will name him Isaac, and I will confirm my everlasting covenant with him and his descendants. As for Ishmael, I will bless him also, just as you have asked. Now notice, Ishmael gets blessed. The people in touch with Abraham get blessed. Isaac is the son of the covenant. The contract goes to Isaac. I'm going to bless Isaac, and I'm going to create Isaac, and I'm going to keep my word through Isaac. And here's the cool part. You know what the name Isaac means? He laughs. Every time anybody would call that little kid and say, Hey, Isaac, come over here. You know what they'd be saying? The old man laughed at God, and look what happened. They would be reminding Abraham of the fact that he really can trust God, even though sometimes he doesn't trust him so well. I think God has a sense of gentle humor here. He's trying to kind of uh, 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 narrow the pathway and force Abraham into true faith, into real confidence with him. And he makes a joke out of it in the process, and I think that's pretty cool. But I want you to go back to this idea of circumcision. Acts 22:16 and Romans Chapter 6, verses 3 to 8. Write those in the margin of your Bible. And then we're going to look them up and talk about them on our way out. Acts chapter 22, verse 16, is not talking about circumcision. It's talking about baptism. But it's speaking of it in much the same terms as that we see circumcision in the Old Testament. In Acts chapter 22, a man named Saul, who grew up in a place called Tarsus, who's a Jewish person, is attacking all of the Christians. Now, the Christians that he's attacking are also, at that time, all Israelis. They're all Jewish people. Uh, but Saul is one of those Pharisees. He's one of those religious rule keepers. And they've managed to kill Jesus. And all these people are running around saying, we saw him alive after he was dead. And Saul's deci decided, I'm going to go kill all of these people and get rid of them. And he's got authority from the government to do it. And he's killed a few. And he's on his way to Damascus in Syria. He's going into another country to arrest believers there and bring them back to Jerusalem and put them to death. And on the way, something really wild happens. He meets Jesus. He sees a vision from heaven. The Bible says, when it tells the whole story, he sees a blinding light flashing out of heaven. And he hears this loud, booming voice. And the people with him see the light. They hear the voice. They only hear it as a noise, but they run away. He's on the ground, and he's blind. He's lost his sight, and he can see the light, but he can't see anything else, and for days he's blind. And, and he, he goes, uh, the, the voice says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, who are you, sir? And the voice says, what Saul doesn't want to hear at all, I'm Jesus. Oh, no. This is all true after all. I've killed the wrong people. I've ticked him off, and he's much bigger than me. All of that's going through his head. What do you want me to do, sir? Well, I want you to go into this next town, and someone will come to you, and they'll talk to you, and it will be told to you through them what you're supposed to do. I'm going to send a prophet to you, and he's going to tell you what to do. Well, now we find that prophet, and, and he's a kind of a quiet man named Ananias. He never shows up anyplace else in the Bible but this one place. And um, Ananias is home in his house praying, and God says, appears to him and says, I want you to go see this guy named Saul from Tarsus, and I want you to pray for him because he's blind, he can't see, and I'm going to use you to heal him, and then I'm going to show him what he must do. 
And Ananias goes, I don't want to do that, Lord. Why? Because he kills Christians, and I'm one. And the first person he's going to see after his eyes come back is me. And God says, no, I got you covered. Go ahead. So Ananias comes. And in verse 13, Paul is telling about it, or Saul is telling about it. And it says, he, Ananias, came to me and stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. At that very hour, I could see him. And then he told me, the God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and hear him speak. And you're to take his message everywhere, telling the whole world what you have seen and heard. And Paul did. Boy, he, he saw, he went everywhere and, and basically propagated the gospel all the way up into Europe. And then it says in verse 16 that Ananias says to Saul, And now, why delay? Get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away, calling on the name of the Lord. Why delay? Why fool around? Get up and be baptized and have your sins washed away in the process. Now, if Jesus died to cancel out our sins, that's already been done. Why does Saul need to go be baptized? Why do you and I need to be baptized? Because it's our way of doing what circumcision did. You're sealing the deal. You're signing off. You're embracing the thing that God did. And it's the way that God said to do it. Now, I'm going to be really pushy here and say this. I want, to, I want to be pushy. I want to say this as strong as I can say it. If you're one of the people that I talk to from time to time that has 150 excuses for why you don't want to get baptized, it's like going into the escrow office to sign off to buy the new house and saying, I like everything. Everything's wonderful. I just don't want to sign. And you know what? It never got legalized. Some of us are struggling because we come to church every Sunday and we hear about God and we can't figure out why there's no power in our life. Step one is sign enough on the deal. There's power in the act of baptism. What? It's just some, you get dunked. What a dumb thing. No, no, no. It's an act of faith embracing God. It's an act He chose. However it feels to us, however it looks to us, the issue is that you take a step of faith and say, God, I'm embracing what it is that you're doing. Am I making sense? I want to get us out of here, but I'd like you to go home and read these verses in Romans uh, chapter 6. Here, here's what it says. It says, Don't you know when you were baptized that you were crucified with Christ? That you died with Him? That you were buried with Him? That you were risen to live a new and a different kind of life? And you go, wait, 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 wait. I didn't go back 2,000 years ago and hang on a cross next to Jesus. What's this all about? What it's saying is, He did it for you, and there's spiritual power in what He did it gets transmitted into your life when you sign the contract, when you embrace fully what he did, and there's a transformation that begins to take place when you seal the deal, if you would. Now, I, I'm I'm very frustrated, Pastor. You know, I, I, I was in San Diego on my vacation, and I had so much fun up there, and I had such a good time, but I missed you guys like crazy. I would not get homesick for my house or for anything else that goes on around here. I, I would sit around and think about, I can't wait to get back on Sunday and just hang out, be with everybody. I love it. I love what God's doing in our midst right now. I love that for the first time in 19 years, I feel really free to dig deep in the scriptures and you're hanging in there with me. Because there's times I've had to throttle it way back because the congregation just wouldn't buy it. And we're going places and it's good and it's healthy. And so most of everything about my job and my role as your pastor, I'm loving it to the hill. Things are really good. You know, we're going away for staff planning deal this week. We put together the calendar. Everything is high hopes. There's one thing that bothers the heck out of me, though. And it's that in some of these little tiny areas, we are collectively disobedient to God. There's several hundred people in our church that I know I'm talking to right now 
that you go, oh yeah, I asked the Lord in my life a long time ago. Yeah, but the Bible says repent and be baptized. It doesn't just say repent. Well, I'm afraid of the water. Or I'm afraid to get up and say something in front of somebody. Or I got to quit doing some bad habit in my life before I can get baptized. No, no, no. It's when Abram was, was, was still uncircumcised that he had faith that God could do something. He entered in by sealing the deal. We need to enter in by sealing the deal. Am I making sense? Now, I'm trying to press you. I'm usually Mr. Kind of Low-Key, you know, but I'm trying to press you. And, and, and now watch this. And this is, you're going to say, well, that was canned and contrived. You betcha. We're, we're having a baptism in a few weeks. We just had one, by the way, and about 35 people got baptized. And if you were one of them, there's a whole bunch of little plaques back there. We made a little picture of you and a little thing that, that's a, a, a kind of a certificate of baptism. It's a gift from the church. Pick it up off the table on your way out. But we're going to have a baptism on September the 11th. Remember September the 11th? And we just thought we would have, we had a worship night scheduled, and we thought, and we were going to do it in Kakaako, and we thought, now let's just bring it home. And on September the 11th, just to kind of remember what went on last year and to pray for our nation, we're going to have a worship night in the courtyard. We're going to use the amphitheater thing that's out there, set up a whole bunch of chairs. Uh, it'll be kind of a quiet night. We're going to do it acoustically. It won't be all electrified and all of that. It'll be a real soft pleasant time of, of praise and worship to the Lord. We're going to have a baptism in the midst of it. Now, when we baptize, usually we like to interview everybody we baptize. We won't be able to do that that night. And so if you're one of those people that's scared to death of talking in front of people, this is your chance. But uh, we're going to have a baptism that night. And I really want you to think about this. I want you to know that, that there are, are areas where we need to take the symbolic stand. We need to move in and say, God, I'm embracing what you're giving to us. And if we don't, he won't. The contract is here. I'll do all these things. Your job is you, you make the seal. You sign it, like you said to Abraham. And, and it's true of us, and we need to embrace God at every level. Am I making sense to you? Good. Let's pray and go home. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your kindness in our lives. Lord, we want everything that you have for us. We want to walk in your power. We want to walk in your freedom. Lord, we want to be like what you said to Abraham, that we would walk with you and become complete. And Lord, we're willing to take every step of the way. We're willing to get in your word and get to know you. We're willing to, 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 to find out what it really means to pray and to know how to talk to you and to be close to you. Lord, some of us need to get out of ourselves and be baptized. Lord, we need to even bring our families so that the non-Christians would, would come and be exposed to you and your kindness and your peace. But Lord... Just work your stuff in us. Help us to grow complete and full in you. Fill our hearts with hope this morning. In Jesus' name. Now keep your eyes closed for just a moment. And we want to pray a little bit more. This is a prayer that says, I want to take a very first step toward God. And that first step is I want to just declare that I believe. And I, and, and I believe in, in such a way that I'm putting my trust in the Lord and saying, God, would you come into my life and begin to make wrong things right? So if that's you and that you would like to pray and invite God into your life, this is kind of the first step toward drawing up that contract. And I'd like to lead you in a prayer. And when, when I pray, I'll pray out loud. You pray it silently. But I want you to hitchhike on my words and just embrace God through this prayer. If you're going to pray with me, I want you to tell me that you are. It's almost like being baptized. You're starting to, to own up to it. The way that I want you to tell me that we're praying together uh, you know, a whole bunch of people have done this this weekend. About a dozen people already have prayed this way. If you want to pray and invite the Lord in your life, I want you just to look at me. We're going to pray in about 30 seconds. But between then and now, I want you just to say, I want to pray with you, Pastor. 
And the way I want you to say that is look at me. Everybody else has their eyes closed, and I'll know what you're saying. Okay, see one man looking at me? Who else? And you in the back there, two people. Very good. And you, good. Okay, I see you. Join me in prayer. God, whatever you have, I want it. Whatever there is that's good, that can fill my life with your peace, your power, your presence, that can make wrong things right. God, whatever it is that you have in terms of directing my life and making me whole, making me complete in you, God, bring that into my life now. What I'm asking for is an intimate, close friendship with you where I can talk to you and you talk back to me. I understand that your son Jesus came into the world to cancel out all of our, our guilt. Lord, I'm embracing that. I want that to happen in my life. Come and fill me with your spirit. Teach me your ways and let your love flow through me. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Word of Hope with Ralph Moore, pastor of Hope Chapel Kaneohe.